right back into Romans 14 and 15, which is where we started last week. And since not all of you here, I was, I'm going to give a really quick recap because it's really helpful to understand what Paul is talking about in this passage. And so just as a reminder, I mean, we started, I think we started in Romans, was it January or February? Something, something like that. And here it is November, and we're not done yet. We will finish before Advent. We're finishing this month. So I don't know, that's pretty good, 10 or 11 months to get through Romans. I know, I know churches who've done it over six years, so, you know, whatever that means. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if there's a value in either one of those over the other, but I guess we're better. So... In Romans 14, Paul is kind of reaching the culmination of everything that he's been talking about in the book of Romans. And from the very beginning, right in chapter 1, Paul was telling us that the righteous by faith shall live. The righteous by faith shall live. And what that means is both that if you want to be righteous, the only way to become righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. None of us are able to satisfy God's requirements. None of us are able to perfectly live out the law. If we try to follow the law, the law condemns us. If we abandon the law, the law condemns us. Even our own conscience condemns us. Because let's face it, folks, even if we create our own rules, we never live up to them. And so either way, we stand in judgment. But Jesus Christ came as the perfect human being and the Holy Son of God. And He lived a perfectly righteous life for us then died on our behalf because the punishment for sin is death. So he took our punishment upon himself and put his righteousness on us. So if we want to have a relationship with God, if we want to be righteous, and in Romans, Paul uses the word righteous pretty much consistently to mean in a right relationship with God. If you want to be in a right relationship with God, it could only come through faith in Jesus Christ. But also, if you're going to live out of that righteousness that's been gifted to you by Jesus Christ, the only way to do that is also by faith and trusting in Him. And so in Rome, there were these two factions, primarily a Jewish and a Gentile faction. The Jewish faction was trying to get all the believers in Rome to follow certain rules and regulations, some of them things that were just intended for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, some of them things that they had added to the law that God didn't even require, but they were requiring. And the Gentiles, by and large, did not want to follow these extra rules and regulations. And so the Jewish believers were judging the Gentile believers for not living righteously. And the Gentile believers were holding the Jewish believers in contempt for expecting them to do something that they thought they ought need to do, that they didn't need to do. And so in Romans 14, we get a couple of terms that come up, and we need to understand what they mean. And so very quickly, if I can get this to work, if I turn it on, uh, we'll see here. No, no good. Can you help me out? Paul talks about, in Romans 14, the weak. We talked about this last week. The weak doesn't mean that you're just a weak Christian or a baby Christian or something like that. The weak is very specifically a person whose conscience requires more of them than the word of God and the gospel requires. We gave some examples of this last week. There's some in the passage. For example, in Rome, because of the food that was sold in the marketplace is often sacrificed to idols, the meat is, many Jewish Christians would not eat meat. And they would condemn anyone who eats meat. So if you, if you were a Christian and you went to the marketplace and bought meat knowing that it had been sacrificed to an idol and then sold in the marketplace and you ate it, then you're defiling yourself. How could you do that? Don't you love God? Right? But God's word doesn't say that you can't eat meat. And we talked a little bit about even the, the kosher laws like pork. We talked a lot about bacon last week because I love bacon. Uh, apparently a number of us love bacon. Uh, we talked about things like how you treat the Sabbath. We talked about other holy days that, that the Jewish believers primarily were requiring the Gentile believers to follow. And then we talked about things even in our own culture, even in our own day. Uh, for example, things like drinking and smoking and how you treat Halloween, because Halloween was last week. Uh, what kind of movies and television you watch. Um, how you vote. Uh, what priority, what issues you give priority in your voting. Some people try to take 
what the scripture doesn't say and impose that on others and say you have to vote this way if you're going to vote as a Christian because they have a certain priority of the issues. And even things like how we treat, you know, and we're, this, is, this is a Protestant church. In the Catholic church, you're re- required to go to a priest for confession. And we don't require that you go to a priest for confession. We confess often directly to God, but you can confess to another person. And so we have these questions where some people think, you have to do this to be a faithful believer, but God's word never says that you have to do it. And the gospel doesn't require it of you. In contrast to the weak, Paul talks about the strong. Still not working. Um, The strong is not necessarily a really great Christian. The strong is someone whose conscience does not require of them more than the word of God and the gospel requires. Now, to point out the fact that Paul is not saying the strong are necessarily the better Christians, Paul addresses the strong primarily because they're treating the weak with so much contempt and they're treating the weak in such a way that's hurting them and damaging their faith. Paul is calling them out even more than the weak. So it's not about being a good Christian or a bad Christian. It's all about how your conscience compels you in relation to the Word of God. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a little complex. Let's go to the next one. Uh, uh, this is just another way of saying one who is free to do or not do whatever is neither commanded nor prohibited by Scripture, that's the strong. So I know some of you uh, would never, either now or maybe when you were younger or when your kids were younger, you would never go trick-or-treating because it's the devil's day, right? Or some version of that. And others, if you feel totally comfortable going trick-or-treating or taking your kids trick-or-treating, no problem. So the Bible doesn't say anything about it. So someone whose conscience is strong feels freedom to do either one. Someone whose conscience is weak feels compelled to avoid celebrating the day. And again, no judgment on any of you if you either do or don't do these things. But this is the way Paul describes it. And I think I even mentioned last week, you know, Paul's going to say things about each of us because we're, we're in one of those camps. And we can actually be in different camps on different issues, right? So I know that I'll show up probably in the weaker category in one issue and maybe in the stronger category on the other in terms of my conscience. And and God's going to say something to us about it. It's not me. (laughs) I'm not judging you. It's the Lord. The Lord Lord is judging each of us on how we respond when we find ourselves in these different situations. Uh, By the way, uh, I'm not going to ask for hands, but there are some Christians who think it is morally wrong to play the lottery. And now, what is the lottery? Is it 1.6 billion? 1.9 billion? So some people's consciences will be tested this week. People who would never play the lottery might be tempted to play. And here's the thing. Paul makes this point. If you think it's wrong, but you do it anyway, you sinned. If you don't think it's wrong and you do it, you haven't sinned. Isn't that kind of crazy? Because the issue is, if you think you're disobeying the Lord and you do it anyway, then that's disobedience. But if you don't think it's wrong, God's not saying it's wrong in the Scripture, so you're free to choose whether to purchase a ticket or not. I will say, I haven't purchased one. I don't plan on doing it. I actually think that's probably the worst thing you could do is win $1.9 billion. It's probably the worst thing that you could ever have happen in your life. But I have to admit, there's a part of me that was a little jealous of those people that won a million dollars last week. I'm like, I could probably handle a million dollars. I don't think that would ruin my life. If you come asking me for money after I win a million dollars, I'm like, here's 10 bucks, you know, fine. But, you know, it's all tied up already. I don't have anything for you. Like, you know, sorry. But $1.9 billion, that's like asking to lose all your friends and family and destroy your life. That's kind of my perspective. But anyway, I can't bind you with that perspective. Right? That's just a perspective. That's not the gospel. So, we talked about how each of us then, if we have a conscience that is more free, we don't want to abuse that freedom in a way that hurts the people whose conscience are not free. So, Paul, and I'm doing this recap because we've already gone through a large portion of chapter 14, where Paul says something like this. Um, if your brother or sister is distressed, let's get that word up there. Go, go to distressed. 
If your brother or sister is distressed, this is Romans 14, 15. Because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Distressed means not just that they're troubled, not just that they're angry at you, not just that they're judging you. Distress means that because of your actions, they are tempted to do something that they think is wrong. Right? So imagine you're out here, uh, you think it's wrong to play the lottery. Let's just run with that one for a second. You think it's wrong to play the lottery. And if I come up here and I say, guys, I want you to pray over these seven lottery tickets that I just bought. Pray that one of them is the winning lottery ticket, but not the big one, like the small one. I want to win the small one. Can you guys pray for me that we win the million-dollar lottery and not the $1.9 million? Because I think I can handle that. Like, can you pray for me on that? And then so that person who thinks it's wrong to play the lottery says, well, if pastor's playing the lottery, I guess, you know, that's a lot of money. I'm going to go for it. Even though I think it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. That's distressing your brother or sister. So verse 15, if your brother or sister is just distressed because of what you eat or because of what you do or because of what you say or because of whatever, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating or saying or doing destroy someone for whom Christ died. So if the way you're living is causing someone to violate their own conscience and to sin before the Lord, then Paul says, don't do it anymore because your freedom is not as important as their relationship with God. In fact, one of the things that here in the United States, I think it's a rampant problem, it's a big problem, is that when this country was founded on freedom, right, it was mostly a freedom to be responsible for things. And in fact, I read this wonderful book about the function of freedom in the writings of the early founders of the nation. And there's kind of like a freedom from things, and there's a freedom for things. And they spoke a lot more about the freedom for things than the freedom from things, even though they were trying to get out from under the rule of a foreign king. So interestingly, even though these people were trying to escape the the rule of a foreign king, they were actually wanting to take responsibility for rule themselves. And so a lot of it was freedom to be able to take responsibility. And in the scripture, that is the, that is the predominant way the scripture uses the word freedom. It's not a freedom from as much as it's a freedom for. And so if we think about our Christian freedom, for example, the freedom to do or not do whatever the, the Bible neither condemns nor requires that definition of the strong, then we might think, why should I limit my freedom because someone over there, because all the people over here are in that category, right? (laughs) Because someone over there is struggling. Christ won this freedom for me. Christ died for this freedom for me. Christ was raised from the dead for this freedom for me, so why should I limit it for them? And the answer is, because Christ died for them too. And so now you're at odds with the work of Christ when you use your freedom in a way that hurts others. So in verse 15, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ has died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Don't let your freedom in Christ be a reason for others to speak negatively about you. Other believers, other brothers and sisters, to speak negatively about you. Now again, not speak negatively about you saying, oh, you know, that guy, he played the lottery, he's evil, he doesn't love Jesus. That guy, he, he drinks, he doesn't love Jesus. Oh, that lady, you know, she, uh, what, what do we have here on our list? <laughs> you know, she, huh? She dances. She doesn't love Jesus. She smokes. She, how can you love Jesus and smoke? No, no, this is, not, this is not the gospel. But he's not just talking about that kind of speaking ill of you. It's, I thought this was wrong, but I did it because they tempted me. I violated my conscience because another brother or sister either passively or actively tried to convince me to do it 
to go against my conscience. Because I have to admit, there's a part, if you are, you know, I think of issues where I shared last week, my parents had an exchange student from Ethiopia and he wouldn't eat pork. And there was a part of my parents who wanted to say to him, no, it's totally fine to eat pork. You should eat pork. Because in the gospel, Jesus has made all things clean. Paul even says that in verse 14, I think. I am fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. My parents were tempted to try to convince him to eat pork. That would be something outside of love. You see that? And how easy is it to do that? Because if we're, if we're at a party and I'm drinking and you're not, then my temptation is to try to convince you that it's okay to drink. If we're at the corner store and I buy a lottery ticket and you don't, I don't want to feel judged by you, so I try to convince you. It's, it's really, it's fine. The Bible doesn't say you can't buy a lottery ticket. You know, that's the temptation that you have when you have freedom in Christ. But Paul says, no, that's, that's not a valid use of freedom. That's not what freedom is for. Freedom is for the building up of the body, not for tearing it down. And I think that's a good way of thinking about this. By your actions, by your words, by your choices, are you building up the body of Christ or are you tearing it down? And Paul even goes on to say, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives even human approval. So if in your freedom you're causing division, you're tearing down the, the, the body, you're opposed to the kingdom. But if you promote unity and joy and gratitude, faith, righteousness, peace, then you're promoting health in the body. Then God will approve, and others will too. This is pleasing to the Lord. He says in verse 19, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall, to cause them to stumble. And this is also, some translations talk about being offended. Being offended is not just being angry. Being offended is to fall into sin. The Greek word there is skandalizo, to be scandalized. And we think of scandalizing, like, oh, he did that? That's, no, scandalizes when you fall into sin because of someone else's freedom. Paul says it's better, it's better to have no freedom at all in these areas than to cause someone to stumble. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. So what he's saying there is, look, if you, if you have freedom in Christ, it's better to keep that between you and God than to kind of put it out there in such a way that it would cause others to fall into sin. Now, this requires what? Discernment, right? Discernment. This is a difficult task. Because what would be totally appropriate in one situation with one person who might disagree with you might not be appropriate in another situation with someone who disagrees with you. You see that, how that would work out? So, for example, um, and this is, this is one of those topics, uh, you know, people have, Christians have different views about language, about language that's acceptable or unacceptable. You know, the Bible talks about avoiding coarse language. And then we get into this question of, well, what is coarse language? And they say, well, maybe it's swear words. Well, who gets to decide what's a swear word and what isn't? And, and, you know, or how about this? Taking the Lord's name in vain, saying the word God, which, by the way, uh, interestingly enough, that is not the Lord's name. That's a descriptor term, but that's kind of how we use it as the Lord's name. So, we, so don't say God unless you're talking to God. And, uh, you know, in, in, in our family... Um, in Spanish, for example, people, you know, the whole like Dios mío kind of thing 
is pretty common, even in Christian circles. And so I remember the first time, uh, and you guys have heard me talk about, many of you have met Pastor Roberto, who passed away over the summer, but he would say, oh my God, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And when I first met him, I thought, oh, what, is he, what is he doing? Like, he's a pastor. And he just said, my God, like it was nothing. And, uh, you know, and I asked Sonia about him, like, what's that all about? And she's like, oh, well, I mean, I think he kind of means my God. Like, he's, it's, it's a way of him trying to keep the Lord and, you know, keep engaged with the Lord in the everyday things of life. But to me, it, was, it, was, it just made me cringe because when I grew up, you didn't say Jesus and you didn't say God unless you were praying or in Bible study. Like, this is the only time you just didn't do that. You know, you didn't just walk around, oh, Jesus, I can't believe, da, 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 you know. Just wouldn't do it, right? It's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's how I felt. Um, now, I actually think that's probably not taking the Lord's name in vain. So my conscience has shifted, right? My conscience, when I feel bound to, has changed. Now, I still don't do it. It's not a habit of mine. I'm not going out of my way to try to do this. But different people have different ideas about what's acceptable and what's not. So again, there are certain people that you probably shouldn't do that around. And there's other people who might not like it, but it would still be okay to do it around. Does that make sense? You know, and so we get into a lot of these issues, you know, and then even swearing, like, when is it ever appropriate to swear? And, you know, I remember, uh, again, in my family, when my mom said, so-and-so said the F word, we knew that she meant fart because that was an unacceptable <laughs> word in our house. You know, you couldn't say that. Very strict view of what language is acceptable and unacceptable in my home. I would say in my home, we were the weaker brothers and weaker sisters on that issue. But then there were other issues where my parents had a lot of, felt a lot of freedom. Um, but you see how these things come up. So if you're around my mom, just avoid the F word, right? <laughs> just don't even say it. That's what we do. We just don't say the F word. If someone toots, they toot, you know? We just find other language for it. Because for her, it's, it's so jarring. And it's, and, but here's the thing. She's not tempted to do it. So if we do say fart, and here's the thing. This is so silly, right? Sometimes I do it on purpose <laughs> to mess with her because I know she's not tempted. But if she were tempted, that would be, that would be wrong. It's, it might be wrong already, but it would definitely be wrong if she were tempted to then violate her conscience. And so you have to kind of like figure out where people are sometimes. And when in doubt, restrict your freedom. And I'll tell you this, having less freedom for the cause of building up the body of Christ is really not a sacrifice. It's going to feel like one, but in the end, it's not. It's a gift. God has gifted you with the opportunity to build someone else up. And then Paul makes this final statement in verse 14, and then we're going to, in chapter 14, and then we're going to move on to 15. He says, Everything that does not come from faith is sin. In some ways, I think this is the best definition of sin that we find in the scripture. Anything done outside of faith. You know, a lot of times I hear questions about, you know, my neighbor is the sweetest person. She's so kind. She's very generous. She's loving. She doesn't believe in God, but she's the nicest person I've ever met. What does God do with that? And it's important for us to understand that the world is not a neutral place. There really is, you know, we don't see it if our eyes are not open to it, but we really are in the midst of a massive battle, a massive war. And there are the forces of God, the forces of light. There are the forces of Satan, the forces of darkness. And they are at war with one another. And we talked about it a little bit last time, and we talked about this before. When you have conflict with someone... You're really not fighting them, especially an unbeliever. You're not really fighting with them. They are captives of our enemy, and they're being used. They've been conscripted into this battle. But you're not fighting them. You're fighting the one who 
who captured them, the one who forced them into this battle, the one who is at war with God. You're, you're at war with our enemy, Satan. And there is no neutral ground in this war. And so your nice, friendly, generous, kind neighbor, all that she's doing that's nice and friendly and kind and generous is being done outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And so by definition, she is living in rebellion. Now, most of us, before we were believers, we didn't think we were living in rebellion. But after we came to Christ, we looked back and we realized, I was living in rebellion. So whether it's an unbeliever or a believer, whatever you do that's not done in faith is in fact sin. This is why God can judge the nicest people and find them lacking. And again, Paul makes this whole point. In the end, no one's righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Because everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. And I know in my life, there's a lot of things that I do outside of faith, and some of them are just really basic things. For example, um, there's, kind of, there's a way to go about your day doing it in the faith of Jesus Christ. And there's a way to do that exact same day with really the same choices, except you really aren't doing it in faith of Jesus Christ. You're just doing it on your own. God's not pleased with that. He doesn't like that. But even more so in this context, when people are being tempted to violate their conscience, anything done outside of faith is, is sin. So Paul sets a really high bar for obedience. He sets a really high bar for holy living. It's to do it all in faith. It's not being done in faith for someone to flaunt their freedom. That's not in faith. If you're, if you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, if you're abiding in Christ and Christ is, is operating through you, you will not flaunt your freedom. You can't. We talked about this when we were looking at Romans 12, that our bodies are a living sacrifice. Uh, you know, this isn't perfect, but, you know, the, the table that we serve our communion on is meant to be an altar. Right? That's the concept of what this table means. And a living sacrifice is someone who puts themselves on the altar on a daily basis. And I made the comment at some point, in order to flaunt your freedom, you'd have to get off the altar first. You can't live outside of faith and, and be on the altar at the same time. It just doesn't work. So you kind of have to step out of that dynamic with Jesus to flaunt your freedom even though you're doing it because you're saying, well, Jesus won my freedom. Does this make sense? It's a high calling, isn't it? To be a living sacrifice is not easy, as the word should imply. It's not easy to be a living sacrifice. It can be painful at times. It, it is sacrificial. And yet this is the call. We're going to step into the first few verses, first half of chapter 15. But before we go on, any, any questions about any of that? Because there's a lot there. Mary. Yeah. Ah, so, so you're, you're saying, I used the example of taking the Lord's name in vain, and I said, well, I don't know if saying God is taking the Lord's name in vain. And you're saying, well, kind of what would it be? Is that what you're asking? How? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, that's a great question, and I'm going to address it quickly. Uh, it's just an example, but uh, in the scripture, the best example, I think, of taking the Lord's name in vain is in the Old Testament. Do you guys remember King Saul? King Saul has been told that he's going to lose the, king, the kingdom and it's going to go to David. And he doesn't like that. And this Holy Spirit leaves Saul, by the way, and goes to David. Um, 
because the anointed king has the presence of the Holy Spirit with him. And so Saul goes to a witch. And he says, hey, witch, I don't remember her name. I think she's the, the witch of Endor or something like that, which is interesting for all you Star Wars fans. Uh, the witch of Endor, says, he, he says to her, I want to talk to Samuel, who's dead. Samuel's dead. I want to talk to Samuel. The witch is, and, and he's in disguise. He doesn't tell her who she is. And she says, no, no, it's illegal in this country to, to do things like that. Uh, I would, you know, the, the king, King Saul would kill me if he found out I was doing divination. And Saul, Saul says to her, in the name of Yahweh our God, you will not be punished if you do this for me. And then something weird happens. She either tricks Saul that Samuel has arrived or Samuel actually arrives. I have no idea how that works. And King Saul talks to Samuel. Now, how in the world can King Saul say, in the name of, of our Lord Yahweh, you will not be punished for this, when Yahweh's the one who said it was wrong to do it? That's taking the Lord's name in vain for sure. Saying, my God, what happened here? I don't know if that is, but I know Saul was. So there's this, middle, there's this gray area with a lot of things, even the scripture talks about, where there's clear examples and then there's unclear ones. But, but again, I'm with you. That's how I grew up. It feels like it's not right. But biblically, I'm not sure I can justify my position from the scripture. And so then I start to say, huh, maybe I should change my mind. So Beth's saying that that example, it might be more about a hard attitude, like, uh, oh my God, I can't believe you did that, da, 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 da. Uh, complaining attitude. Although there's certainly plenty of people who complain to the Lord in the Psalms and the other, other areas of Scripture. So I, th- I think uh, it can even be more nuanced than that. But yeah, so here's where I would just land in, in relation to our sermon today is, then don't judge someone by their usage because it's not super clear always where someone's heart is, and it's not super clear what Scripture requires. There are other things that are very clear that Scripture requires. So this is the other point we didn't get to last week. You know how people say, let's major on the majors and minor on the minors? And they might read this passage and say, let's major on the majors and minor on the minors. But that's not really what Paul's saying either, because there are minors... You know, if the minors are the things that we're, we have differences about and the majors are, I mean, the way I take that is there are things that are less important and things that are more important. So we're not going to divide over issues of the gospel. I mean, we might divide over issues of the gospel. If you deny that Jesus died on the cross, then we might have to part ways in terms of, of where we are as a church family. Does that make sense? But we're not going to divide over things that are less important like... Um, for example, what style of music to sing. But the big difference is, it's not just that the gospel is really important and the style of music is not, or less important. It's that the Bible never requires us to use a certain style of music, but the Bible does require us to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not so much big issues and small issues. It's issues that the scripture requires or prohibits and issues that the scripture is silent on. So there can be big issues for us. They feel big, but the scripture might be silent on them. And there could be things that feel big for us that the scripture isn't clear about. I've seen churches split, for example, over uh, free will and predestination. The Bible certainly talks about it, but we don't have a common understanding of what it says. And so in those moments, then we can have freedom of conscience. It's still a big issue, but it's not super clear. But then there are what we might call minor issues that are clear in Scripture. So, for example, I, I brought up smoking. Some Christians really, they, they'll judge you if you smoke. But, and, and this is a little sensitive in our culture, but, but if you come in 
really overweight, they won't say anything. But the Bible actually talks about gluttony, and it doesn't talk about smoking. So our church is not going to divide over your weight. <laughs> like, let's just put that out there. We're not going to divide over the scale measurement. But the Bible talks about eating in excess, and it doesn't talk about smoking. And yet Christians will make a big deal about smoking and not about eating. So it's not just the minor and the majors. It's the ones that the Scripture is clear on and the ones the Scripture is not clear on. Right, so how do I know when to limit or restrict my freedom? What was the last part, Sim? Are you saying trash? Yeah, like, do I just get rid of my freedom? Right. Right, do I just get rid of my freedom, or how do I know when to limit my freedom? So the answer to the second question is no, do not trash your freedom. Jesus paid a heavy price for your freedom, and it's a gift that God has given you for your blessing and for your flourishing. But how do you know when? Well, sometimes you won't know until afterwards, and that's just the hard reality. Sometimes it's not until later that you realize that the way you've been acting is impacting someone in a hurtful way. And what you do then is, what do you do when you hurt somebody? Yeah, you go to them, and you tell them you're sorry, and you repent, meaning you change your behavior, at least around that person, because you can also keep it between yourself and the Lord. So you can have your freedom at home, but, and maybe you can have your freedom in other places, but maybe there are certain places you go where you restrict your freedom. And, you know, a really silly, obvious example of this is I mentioned our friends who are, you know, Rabbi Nathan, a lot of you guys know. When we go to their house, we don't eat pork. I mean, they're not serving it. We don't stuff it in our pockets to bring along. <laughs> we know that to do that would be not only hurtful to our relationship, but it might also, particularly the children, it might create a temptation for them that wouldn't otherwise be there. So we, we don't, and when they come to our house, we don't serve it. But golly, we had bacon this week probably twice or three times. Like, we eat pork. And, you know, and again, like that one is one that, apart from the Jewish-Christian dynamic, that's not a big deal in our culture. But I think I mentioned last week, uh, if someone comes to our house for the first time and we're having dinner, I might ask them, hey, how do you feel about us serving wine? And if they say, I don't feel comfortable with that, we just don't serve it. Like, it's not a big deal to have a dinner without wine, even if you enjoy wine. But when they're not there, sometimes have a glass of wine. Now, even saying that, I know that potentially that could create a temptation for someone in this room. But, I'm, but I, hopefully in the context we're talking, you're understanding that I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to do what I do. I'm saying we each need to be free to follow our conscience. And if your conscience is a no on that issue, don't do it. By, by all means, don't do it. Alyssa. There you go. Sorry if I tempted anyone. <laughs> well, now that you've told us. <laughs> no, it is a safe environment to do that. If you, so are, are you talking about someone who is convicted or someone who isn't convicted? If you're not convicted already, and then, I mean, I and then you feel convicted later? Yeah. Okay, so what's your responsibility if you're the one tempted? And at the time, maybe you thought it was fine, and then later you feel convicted about it. Repentance. Going to the Lord. Lord, I'm feeling convicted about this. I'm sorry. Uh, because I feel convicted, I won't do it again. Unless you change my mind. God can change your mind. What's that, Kim? I said, no, no, you don't throw away the winning lottery ticket. You put it in the box in the back and everything. Like, what are you talking about, Kim? You don't throw away the ticket. You just donate all the money. 
Goodness. We'll, we, we will disperse those funds in a very appropriate manner. Trust me. Trust me. Yeah. It's your fault. <laughs> okay. Who needs to confess? We've got a microphone right here. Uh, that's funny. That's funny. Uh-huh. Well, I, you know what? That, and here's the thing. She's saying, I, I'm the one who is talking about getting the tickets. And in my mind, a third, a third goes to God, a third goes to... And she said, I have it in thirds. And you know, here's the thing. You are free to make that choice. And you're, you're, you're totally free. And, and if that third goes in our box, I'm going to support it. <laughs> Let's take one more because we do have another 15 verses to get through. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about. I, I was going to talk about that later, but let's talk about it right now. So, my parents had this exchange student. He's from Ethiopia. He thinks eating pork is wrong, uh, and he's convinced of this. And there were a bunch of other things he was convinced of too that we would say the scripture never says that. You know what are you talking about? Now it would be wrong for my parents to try to convince him to eat pork. It would not be wrong for my parents to try to convince him that the righteous shall live by faith. Do you see the difference? One is to say, I can't believe, I'm going to treat him with contempt. I can't believe you don't eat pork. What's wrong with you? Look, we're going to slip pork into the food until you accidentally eat it. And then we're, you know, like, I mean, there's an extreme version of that, but even the mild version, hey, it's fine to eat pork. The Bible doesn't say that. Da, da, da. Right. A different approach that's not going to cause your brother or sister to stumble, to be distressed, to be offended, is to say, hey, how is it that you understand holiness as a believer? And what do you think, what do you think um, the righteous by faith shall live? What do you think that means? And when it says it is for freedom that you've been set free in the scripture, you know, don't do this all in one conversation. Like, what do you think that means? Like, how do you understand that? How do you live out your freedom in Christ? Uh, when it says that we've died to the law and we're no longer under the law anymore, I mean, Paul is obviously not saying not to address these topics because he just addressed them. You know, the, the Bible in Romans, it says that we're dead to the law and we no longer live by the law, but we live by the Spirit. What, how do you understand that? And you try to, instead of trying to get them to eat pork, you try to get them to live a life of faith in Christ and the freedom that he's won, understanding that to, and understanding that to try to follow the law will lead you to sin. But here's the thing that's difficult. There are plenty of things the Bible's very clear on, and a lot of Christians want to get out from under those two. Right? I mean, it, this, this gets tricky because now we're talking about, okay, what are the things that Christians think are not clear that I guess I think are clear? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're saying, what about just going to the person and say, hey, why, I'm curious, why don't you eat pork? And they give you their answer, and you say, well, do you mind if I share my perspective on that? And she was saying, you've got to watch your heart. It's not about trying to convince them, or you know, but really just come to a common understanding. And she says, kind of like what we're doing here. And what I would say to that is, if you know that you can have that conversation without tempting the person to violate their conscience, by all means have it but some people can't 
And so I think ultimately we should follow the pattern of Paul here. Paul doesn't address this until the very end. He doesn't say a thing about holy days until chapter 14. And chapter 16 is just his hellos and goodbyes. I mean, you think about it in the terms of relationship. He's covered all this stuff on the role of Christ, the role of the gospel, the role of faith, the role of sin, the role of the law, baptism, death and resurrection. He covers all of that first before he even mentions anything about a holy day or meat. I think that's a good pattern. I think it's a good model for us. is to, Because really the issue, like, God doesn't care whether they eat meat. God doesn't care whether this young Ethiopian Christian eats pork or not. He does care about how he interacts with the Lord in relation to faith. So, I, I think part of this, Paul saying, is like, why do you even care if someone's not eating meat? Why do you even care if they're observing the Sabbath? The only reason to care is that you feel judged by it, in a sense. Except that you want to help them to have the relationship with God that's based on faith and not on their works. So if you see that someone is thinking that they have to perform a certain way for God to accept them, then that's a gospel issue. That's not a pork issue. You see? I think, that's where, I think that's where we need to kind of point in our conversations. And here's the thing. In this room, again, some of us are weak on some issues and strong on others, and then vice versa. So we need to be having this conversation with each other. As uh, you know, We've talked about this a lot. We should always be preaching the gospel to one another. You don't just preach the gospel to the lost. The believers, we need to hear the gospel every single day. Because we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded tomorrow when I wake up that God is not judging me on my performance. He cares what I do. He cares when I disobey Him. But the reason He cares when I disobey Him is because when I disobey Him, I'm not in faith. It all goes back to the gospel, which is that there's a righteousness by faith. It begins with faith, it continues with faith, and it ends with faith. And the problem with works righteousness is not that we just it's not just that we can't live up to it, it's that we're stepping out of faith to do it. You see this? And so there's a way to be obedient in faith, and there's a way to be obedient outside of faith. This is not easy stuff. It really requires some prayerful soul searching. That's why David says, you know. Uh, search me, O Lord, and know my way. See if there's anything, I forget if he says unclean or what, you know, and if there's any wicked way in me. Because we don't always see it. We think we're doing the right thing and God's like, ah, but that's not, you're not doing it in faith. And it's not to judge us because again, even that is forgiven in Jesus Christ. But there's a better way to live. There's a different way to live. Jesus says, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. I don't say anything unless I hear the Father saying it. It's about this relationship, this connection, this trust that he has in his Father continually and continuously. So does Jesus know uh, that he's going to, you know, cast out a demon? Well, sure, but he still wants to hear it from his Father first. He wants to do it in faith. Does that make sense? It's not the way we normally talk about these things, but I think it's, it's definitely, I think it's a more biblical way to conceptualize what sin really is. All right, so in verse 15, 1, Paul says this. We who are strong. So Paul is identifying himself in the strong group. And he's not making qualms about it. He knows that the weak are going to read it and the strong are going to read it, but he still says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So he is calling these things failings because to put so much emphasis on a special day or a special food is a lack of faith. But he already told us, if you think it's wrong to eat the meat, don't eat it. So he's saying at the same time, don't eat the meat, but it is a failing to think that you can't eat the meat. 
Because again, it's faith that's the issue. It's not the doing or the not doing. So if you're the strong, bear with those who are weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. This is the second or third time he's used that word edify, build up in this passage. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Okay, he's quoting from Psalm 69 there. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And this is a psalm that refers to the Messiah taking upon himself the insults of the Father. So if Jesus is willing to take upon himself the insults of the Father, then we can be willing to take on the insults of others. Jesus wasn't about pleasing himself. He would take the heat in order to honor the other. And if Jesus does that, then we should do that. We take the heat to honor the other. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Guys, when you have a divided community, where's the hope? I know in the history of this church there have been seasons where there have been divisions. But hasn't it been so much nicer when there weren't divisions? <laughs> I think of all the churches you've been in that may have experienced divisions. It, it can be... We're almost there. All right. It, it can be debilitating, can't it? You, you, it's like you don't want to get up in the morning when the community you love is divided. But when we're united, it's like eager to be here. It's encouraging. You think, oh, there's, it's going to be a good day today. It's going to be a good day at church today. But when the community's divided, you're thinking, oh, Lord, what are you, you going to do today? How are you going to save this one? You know, and, and there is this correlation between the unity of the body and the hope that we have. Verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Remember, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's saying the same thing here, to have the mind of Christ toward each other so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets to the verse here. This is the line that is the theme of the entire book of Romans. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And here's Paul's point. How can you not accept your brother when Christ accepted you as an enemy? How can you not accept your sister who's doing her best when Christ accepted you in your worst. And it's like that parable of the man who was forgiven a massive debt by the king. I think, I think if I remember correctly, you know, the debt he was forgiving was, was something like, you know, the, like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollar range. And then his neighbor who owed him a very small amount, he had him thrown into prison because he didn't pay his debt. And the king found out, and what did he do? He threw the man that he had forgiven into prison because that man had not forgiven his neighbor, a much smaller debt. This is a small thing to ask that you restrict your freedom compared to what Christ was asked to give you the freedom. Very small thing to ask. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made in the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now, for us, this feels a little out of place right here. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? But you've got to remember, who's the conflict between largely? The Jews and the Gentiles. This is still early enough in Christian history that it was still kind of mind-boggling that Gentiles could actually have a relationship with God without becoming Jewish. Because for all of history before that, if you wanted to encounter God, you had to go to the temple. And if you wanted to get into the temple, you had to be Jewish. And so if you were a Gentile, you remember the Bible talks about these God-fearers? 
God fears our Gentiles who believe in the truth of Israel, the truth of the Old Testament. They believe in Yahweh, right? But they haven't taken that final step to get circumcised or to finally take on all of the requirements and obligations of Judaism. But in Christ, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to take on all the requirements of Judaism. You can have a relationship with God not because you're a son of Abraham, but because you're a brother or sister of Jesus. And this is still kind of a mind-boggling thing. And then Paul says, he says, how can you hold these Jewish brothers and sisters in contempt when it was through the Jews that God brought you to himself in the first place? Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he's not just doing it for the Jews. He's done it for you through the Jews. Through Abraham, God has brought you into the promises. And he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages here. Um, again, in the Old Testament, they didn't yet have this vision that Gentiles were going to be accepted into the family of God. So, but there's these examples where you see it, if you have eyes to see it. So uh, he quotes first, um, this is Second Samuel. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And, and the whole point of this passage is, it's not just the Jews. It's not just Israel where the praises of God are being lifted up. They're even lifted up in the presence of the Gentiles because they come to faith. Verse 10, again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Meaning that the, the Gentiles are also going to be rejoicing with Israel. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Not just Israel praising God. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and in him Gentiles will hope. Who is, who is this um, uh, branch that shoots out of the root of Jesse? It's Jesus. That's why at Christmas time, sometimes people celebrate with a Jesse tree. So Jesse is the father of David. David becomes this great tree and his descendants become the kings of Israel. Solomon, uh, and then after Solomon, a divided kingdom, but in the southern kingdom, the, the tree continues. And the tree is cut off. The, kingdom, the, the kingship is cut off. The tree is cut down and there's just a stump there. But out of the stump comes a shoot and that shoot is Jesus Christ, the long-awaited king of Jesse, coming from Jesse. And in him, the Gentiles will hope. Paul's saying, don't hold the Jews in contempt. You wouldn't have salvation without them. He's already told the weak, do not judge the strong. And this part he's telling the strong, do not hold the weak in contempt. Because you'd have no salvation without them in the first place. And then in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have a God of hope who wants you to overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit with all joy and peace and trust. So we cannot be divided over these things. Uh, let's go to the next slide, Astra. So here's what you don't do, okay? Let's make it really simple. If you're someone whose conscience feels weak, and what I mean by that, if you're someone who feels like there's a lot of rules you're always watching out for, okay? Yes, there's room to grow and understand your freedom in Christ. But in the meantime, don't do this. Don't judge your brother or sister in Christ because they don't hold themselves to the same standard that you do. They're not your servant. They're Jesus' servant. Who are you to judge another master's servant? So don't judge them. Now, again, this is on disputable matters. When the Bible is clear, go to them with the Scripture and say, hey, the Bible says this and you're not doing it. That's a different scenario where Jesus tells us to go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, go to them with another brother or sister. If that doesn't work, bring it before the church. That's different. I'm talking about things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say. Don't defy your own conscience. If you defy your own conscience, you are the one who's guilty. 
You're guilty if you defy your conscience. So don't do that. Even if someone else feels freedom, if you don't feel freedom, you don't do it. And then don't jeopardize unity for disputable matters. The body of Christ is meant to be one, meant to be united. This is all over the New Testament. God is not pleased when we create division over disputable matters. There are times when division is necessary to separate from actual disobedience. You know, if again, if someone's denying the cross, that's a false unity to stay together when you've got people who deny the cross and those who do not deny the cross, who accept the cross. So we're not talking about that. But when you've got a disputable matter, you don't separate over those things. Some of them are really important matters. Right? It's not majors and minors. It's clear and unclear. So we have to be careful that if we're going to confront someone, we need to be really clear in our own hearts that this is a biblical requirement and not just our own conscience. That's a heightened sense of conscience. It's kind of like this. It's a silly scenario, uh, example, but I think it works. There's a difference between having a cold and having an allergy. When you have a cold, your body responds the same way as it does to an allergy in a lot of cases. Right? You're, you, you get a fever. You might get a runny nose. You might have a cough. You do that. For a cold, you do that to expel the thing that's causing you harm. But the reason we call an allergy an allergy is that that thing won't actually hurt your body, but your body thinks it'll hurt you. Your body's responding as if pollen will hurt you. Your body's responding as if certain things will cause you harm. And so it tries to expel them, even though it doesn't really cause you harm to have pollen going in your nose. But it looks the same on the outside if it's a real pathogen or if it's just pollen. Your nose is runny. You cough, right? Your body's responding the same way. So you have to be really clear that when you're going to confront someone that you're not responding out of an allergy instead of from a cold. Does that make sense? Is that helpful at all? So that's the thing. If you're the weak, that's what you don't do. Now, if you're the strong, this is the list for the strong. Notice that the list for the strong is larger than the list for the weak. Do not treat your brother or sister with contempt. So it's a little different from judging them. Judging them is, you're doing something wrong and I can't believe you're doing that. Contempt is, how dare you tell me what to do? How dare you judge me for something that isn't even wrong? can't believe you would do that. And don't argue with them and try to convince them. This is not something you should be doing. Uh, you won't get very far is the first reason. Uh, and, and it can be that you are just feeling insecure in your own freedom, so you're trying to convince people to think the way you are. You've got to be careful with that. But even if your, your intentions are pure, you have to be alert to the fact that you might be threatening someone's conscience here. You might be threatening them by tempting them to defy their conscience just by trying to convince them. Because you might convince them enough to do it even though you haven't convinced them enough to change their beliefs. That's not love. Don't use your freedom to destroy others. Same kind of thing. Don't open the good up to the charge of evil. It is good. It is good that you have strength to make your own choice about how to celebrate Halloween. Don't let someone call that good evil by you, you using your freedom to destroy a brother or sister in Christ. And don't jeopardize unity for disputable matters. Okay, what can we do? What do we do? Well, we do accept one another. We do bear with one another. We do keep certain things between us and God or maybe us and other like-minded people. Certain things you do at home or certain things you do in one place, not in another. Uh, we do want to have this transformed mind of Christ where we have unity, right? Have the same mind of Christ toward one another. 
so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we do want to have hope and joy, peace, and trust of the Lord. And that's where this thing goes. At the end of the day, it all comes back to worship. It all comes back to honoring and glorifying God. It all comes back to that joy and celebration and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So sometimes I think it feels like Christianity is a whole bunch of different things that we've got to figure out. And I'm trying to hopefully display to you today that it's, all one, it's actually all one big thing with multiple facets. So whether we're talking about whether you, know, whether you eat certain kind of food tonight is part of your worship. Whether, how, how you engage with another believer on a disputed matter is an issue of faith. It's a gospel issue. These are not separate things. You can't, I mean, you can, but you oughtn't. You ought not accept the gospel with joy and then treat someone in a way that's not gospel-oriented. It doesn't fit. And it's not worshipful to live that way. So this is what it is. This is what Paul's been getting at. Now, we could think of a hundred applications for this passage in our church and in the broader church in America and in the world. But again, this is just how you treat believers on matters that are not clear from Scripture. It's not telling you how to treat unbelievers. It's not telling you how to treat believers on matters that are clear. How do you treat believers on matters that are unclear in such a way that you glorify God and you live out of that hope, peace, and joy of the gospel? Amen? All right. Well, Lord, we have now before us an opportunity for the rest of our days here on this earth to live this out, to live out what it means uh, to treat our brothers and sisters in a way that's loving and honoring to you. And so, God, as we do that, I pray that you would call to mind the times and moments and places where we, we don't live that way, where we don't actually, um, where we're operating out of that weak conscience or we're operating out of contempt or we're operating out of judgment in ways that are not what you call us to do. And so, Lord, as we come to this next moment of worship where we are brought back in in very physical ways into this deep, tangible relationship with you where you are in us and we are in you as we come to this communion table, Lord, remind us about unity. Remind us about our common, uh, not only purpose, but our common, um, our common salvation from who we were into the fullness of who you are in Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that. It's his name we pray. Amen.